to that book of the Bible in a church service. The other half of you, it's been a while probably. Numbers 27. It's the fourth book of the Bible for your information. You can use the table of contents, but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. There you go. Numbers 27. Uh, while you're turning there, we're going to have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, that's mostly just for cheating, though. Uh, we love physical Bibles around here. We think God is, just kind of uses them in a special way. And so if you don't have a Bible, uh, yeah, screen. But there's also one, should be about every other seat in here in the little racks beneath the seats. And so everybody's within arm's reach of one. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, man, we would love you, for you to take that one home. Uh, and the reason for that is pretty simple. We, we believe that God's word is important and mine's not really that much. And so uh, if you uh, take that Bible home and start reading on your own, we believe that God's going to use it for all kinds of things. One, he's going to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. He's also going to use it to shape us both individually and as a body called the church. But listen, the, the main reason God has given us the Bible is to know him. It above every other part of creation is the tool that he uses to teach us about himself. And uh, we want you to know God. And so the best place to find him is in the Bible. Bible. And so if you don't have a Bible, take that one home and everybody goes home a winner. All right. And so uh, Numbers chapter 27. Uh, we are in a series that we started the week after Easter called the story of God. And the premise is pretty simple. We believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Like the whole thing, not, not just the New Testament, not just the Messianic promises towards the end of the Old Testament from the prophets. No, the entire Bible, even the stories of guys like Adam and Abraham and Noah and David. We believe that those stories are about Jesus too. That if we read the Bible correctly, that we walk away from their stories uh, with a deeper understanding of who our God is and what he has done. With a deeper love for who our God is and what he has done. All right? And so so to flesh out this thesis, to flesh out this thought, we're taking a slow walk through the lives of all the major Old Testament characters, the guys that you put up on the Mount Rushmore of the faith, right? right? And so we're taking a slow walk through their lives and answering the question, how does their story tell us about the much larger, much more beautiful story of God? All right? And so here's the deal, though. That is a massive question to answer. And so we've taken up the practice of breaking it into four smaller questions. And I feel that if we answer the, those four smaller questions well, we'll get to a place where it's actually easy to answer our bigger question. Those questions are, how is this person raised up? What made this person a seemingly bad choice? What did God do to redeem them? And how does their story preach the gospel? If we answer those four smaller questions well, we actually put ourselves, position ourselves, posture ourselves in such a way that the massive, how does their story tell us about God question is actually quite easy to answer. All right, and so, but here's the deal. Um, in order to tell our story well today, we got to throw you a curveball, all right? So instead of going in order like you would naturally do, one, two, three, four, we're going to switch two of the questions. We're going to switch questions three and two, so it's going to go one, three, two, four. Does that make sense? For those of you who don't, I'm sure you're smart, you'll catch up, all right? One, three, two, four. So y'all ready to figure out who our character is today? How many of you already know? Joshua. Let's figure out some more about our guy. Moses is number two. Great military leader, question mark, maybe. Yahweh saves. So y'all ready to jump into it this morning? All right, let's look at question number one. How was Joshua raised up? And the answer is in a really cool way. In a really cool way. It's a, um, so the first appearance of Joshua is in Exodus 17. I know I told y'all to, to turn to Numbers. You can read Exodus 17 later. It's a story you probably heard before. All right? uh, God's people are in the wilderness. They're traveling from point A to point B. They've already crossed the Red Sea. They're, they're heading towards the promised land. And they're in a fight against a group of people called the Amalekites. 
All right? And Joshua is the general. He's the guy leading the army. All right? They are fighting in the wilderness against this group of people who want to do them harm. And Moses is off at a distance up on a rock. And they figure out that every time that Moses holds up his arms and his staff, that the army prevails. And every time Moses lowers his arms and his staff, the, mo- the army does what? Begins to lose, right? And so they're like, you know what? We can fix this. And so our, Moses keeps his arms up. But it's a long battle. He can't keep his arms up that long. And so he gets a couple of guys to hold his arms up for him. And it's a really cool story. In fact, there's all kinds of leadership principles that you can pull from that story. Right? You want to surround yourself with guys who will help you lead well, right? Like you can look at that story and go, mm, that's a good thing to do. Like we can apply that to all kinds of places in life. But where's Joshua during all this? He's down on the battlefield. And the main part of the story is happening at a distance on a rock. Right? And so the introduction of Joshua into this story, the first time we get a glimpse of who Joshua is, we don't, know, we don't learn anything about Joshua. Other than that, he's the guy down on the battlefield doing all the fighting while the important stuff is going on on a rock. Joshua's just the guy walking in faithfulness while the story is going on somewhere else. That's the first time we see Joshua. The next appearance of Joshua is in Numbers chapter 13. If you don't know your Bible well, maybe you haven't read, spent a lot of time reading the Pentateuch. There's a lot of words in between Exodus 17 and Numbers 13, but the timeline, the, the distance of time between those two points is only about a couple of months. All right? And so in Numbers 13, we get the next appearance of Joshua, and the people of Israel make it through the desert. They get to the border of the promised land, and they're getting ready to go in. And so Moses recruits for him 12 spies, because they want to know who they're fighting against, right? They spy out the land, and they come back with their report. And 10 of those 12 spies aren't just impressed with what they see in the land, they're also impressed with who they see in the land, and they're kind of scared of them. And so they bring back a report that, hey, these guys are too big. We can't handle this. Let's just go home. And Joshua and Caleb, the other two guys, are like, no, 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 our God's got this. I mean, I, haven't you realized he got us out of Egypt? He had us cross the Red Sea. By this point, they're already being fed by like, food that's literally falling out of the sky for them. God has been sustaining them all this way. And so Joshua and Caleb, the minority report, those other two people are going, no, our God's got this. And then the ten double down, and they actually lie about it. They say, no, it's, the land is full of giants. We're all going to die. And they sway the crowd. And the people don't want to go in anymore. I think God feels about that. He, he's not happy at all. He immediately wants to kill everybody. Moses talks him down. However that looks, that's another story for another day. Moses talks him down. And the result ends up being that God swears that no one he rescued out of Egypt but failed to trust him now would get to enter the promised land. And so from that moment on, God's people end up wandering in the desert for a generation. Forty years for that generation of people to just die off. And again, what role does Joshua play in the story? He was one of the few people who were walking in faithfulness while everybody else was buckling under the pressure, right? He's the guy who's faithfully doing his job in spite of the circumstances. And then we don't hear from Joshua for a while. About 39 years, actually. 
We don't, we don't get any mention of Joshua between Numbers 13 and Numbers 27. But that faithless generation dies off and God brings them close to the promised land again. And we read this in Numbers 27. Look at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. It means he's going to die. Verse 14, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah uh, of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Verse 15, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man of whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Verse 19. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation." Verse 22, and Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. Okay, so God brings Moses and the people of Israel back to the border of the promised land again. They've been wandering around, waiting for a generation to die off. They finally get to the finish line again. God brings Moses up on the mountainside to look into the promised land and says, hey, you remember that time you sinned against me in a great way? I'm not letting you in either. That's a fun little story, right? How'd you like to be Moses in that moment? Put up with the people of God, the contentious and always complaining people of God for 40 years and finally get to the finish line. It's like, now you're dying here. You don't get to take them across the finish line either. And instead of Moses going, but, 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 the Bible says that Moses immediately in that moment is thinking about the welfare of Israel and he begs God to raise up someone from among the congregation to lead them into the promised land. God, in fact, his own words, let them not be like sheep without a shepherd and without missing a beat. God goes, I already got somebody, Joshua. Pick out Joshua. Elevate Joshua. There's no sleep on it. Go home and pick the most uh, able-bodied candidate. He's not go out and gather the congregation of the people around and see who stands a little taller than everybody else. He doesn't say collect some resumes and see which one just jumps off the page to you. God says, I got your guy, Joshua. And so Joshua's story begins with him quietly walking in faithfulness and it continues with him being tapped as the next leader of God's covenant people. call a little time out as a side note this is exactly how the healthiest churches pick their leaders the healthiest churches that doesn't mean it's an always every time thing there's there's reasons not to but the healthiest churches healthiest organizations even they're not looking for a charismatic leader from the outside to come in and fix everything they're finding faithfulness on the inside and they're elevating it that's for free moving on 
may come into play years later. I don't know. No, new leaders to be selected. A new leader is to be selected, and Joshua is going to be that guy. And in Deuteronomy 31, you can read that for homework later, we see the specific steps that Moses walks through to empower Joshua to be that next leader. Text tells us in, in chapter 31, if you, if you got it open, that Moses begins to speak of Joshua as the next guy before the people. He then formally presents Joshua to, to the people as the next leader and commands them to follow him. He and God bring Joshua into the tent of meeting, if you know anything about that kind of story and what's going on there. And they formally commission Joshua to be the next leader. And so again, all kinds of leadership principles that we can drag out of this. It's a cool story. You're interested in that kind of stuff? Spend some time there. But then in... Deuteronomy 34, Moses dies. Literally, God kills him and buries him somewhere on the mountain that no one knows about. Awesome story. Go read that one on your own. But it's now Joshua's turn at the plate. Joshua steps up to be the next leader. And so the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the writings of Moses... They close out with the death of Moses. And without even really taking a deep breath, the, the book of Joshua begins with Joshua taking the next step of leadership. They close out the, the life and, and era of Moses and then the next step in the process is that, Joah, that Joshua is now in charge. He's the new sheriff in town, if you want to go that way. So look at Joshua 1. Verse 1, after the death of Moses, <laughs> it's going to read to you. <laughs> We're on Joshua 1 now, by the way. <laughs> Joshua 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, the Jordan River, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. Verse 4, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you in all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. That's a big promise. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall me uh, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. From then, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What a promise. And so Joshua takes up the mantle. It's his turn. And the promise that God gave to Moses is repeated to Joshua by God. Joshua turns around, repeats that to the people. And God uses Joshua to lead his covenant people into the promised land. The land that he promised all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, if you remember that. We studied it several weeks ago, right? 
That land, God is finally fulfilling his promise, the land of rest. They had been enslaved in Egypt for four centuries, 400 years. God rescues them out in a massive way. They wander through the desert for four decades, 40 years. And they're finally home. They march into this land of rest. They cross over the Jordan River in chapter 3 of Joshua. It's a story that, if you haven't read it before, intentionally mirrors the story of the Red Sea crossing. There's things going on there that parallel on purpose. And the great general of God's army is now tasked with driving out all the inhabitants of the land. It's his job to do. And if you're into war literature, the first half of the book of Joshua is some of the coolest stuff out there. Go read that one on your own. God uses Joshua in a really neat way. Great, God raised up Joshua. We also have a few other questions to answer this morning, right? For starters, remember the curveball? Question number three, what did God do to redeem him? See, if you read the story of Joshua correctly, you come to the conclusion pretty quickly that God is always using Joshua above his pay grade. Like, we kind of tend to have these really big ideas of who Joshua is. He's a great warrior, right? Not if you read his story, like, accurately. God is always using him above his pay grade. For instance, the most well-known story of Joshua is the Battle of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, right? Uh, maybe you don't know the story. They, they march into the promised land, and the first city that they get to among, enter, uh, upon entering the promised land is the mighty city of Jericho with its just massive fortified walls. Right? Not the one that you want to pick off first. It's a big deal. How are you going to do this? And so in that moment, the Bible tells us that Joshua doesn't sit down and try to figure out a way to go through the walls. He doesn't figure out a way to go over them or under them. He prays and asks God what to do. And God tells him to, quote, march around the city in silence for six days. And then do it again on the seventh day. And at the end of marching around on the seventh day, shout and blow trumpets as loud as you can. And so what do they do? They do what God says. They march around the city for six days. They march around the city for the seventh day. They shout. They all blow the trumpets. And the walls fall down. And they enter into the city and do what God told them to do. Now, I'm, I'm sure you probably don't need me to explain this to you, but just in case you haven't crossed that logical bridge yet, trumpets don't make walls fall down. But you see, the, the, the sound waves, when they were at the right frequency, caused the walls... No. Trumpets do not make walls fall down. And that's the point of the story. If you're reading the story of the Battle of Jericho correctly, you need to walk away with the conclusion that trumpets cannot make walls fall down. So who made walls fall down? God made the walls fall down. The most famous battle in Joshua's story, Joshua is not the one responsible for the victory. Joshua didn't do anything of substance other than doing exactly what God told him to do. That's Joshua's role in the story, faithfulness. The second most famous battle in Joshua's story is in chapter 10. 
right? Uh, all, they're marching through the land. They're picking off all these different armies. And these five kings get together. It's like, hey, you know what? If we cooperated, we might stop these guys. And so the story rolls out in chapter 10 that five armies battle against Joshua's one army. All right? And in chapter 10, they get to this point where uh, they're fighting and the sun starts to go down. They run out of daylight, which, I mean, think about it. It takes longer to beat five armies than it does one army. And so they couldn't get it all done in a day. And so Joshua asks God to make the sun stand still. And it does. Like, that's a story I'm sure you're going to ask questions about for our Q&A later. God makes the sun stand still to give them more time to defeat those five armies. You think Joshua's the one that's responsible for making the sun stand still? Anybody in here want to claim that power? Like, yeah, Joshua didn't do that. God did that, right? God makes the sun stand still in the sky to give him more time. <laughs> and if you read the story in chapter 10, there's a, there's a one verse, verse 11, that I think gets overlooked. Let's look at it here. Joshua 10, 11. It says, as they fled before Israel, this is after the sun event, they have been fighting against these guys for longer than a day now. As they fled before Israel, the other five armies, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord drew down, or threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, or however you want to pronounce that, and they, what? Died. And this is, what, this is the best sentence in the, in the story. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So even this incredibly crazy story where Joshua asks for the sons to, to stand still and God chooses to bless that request and get this incredibly miraculous victory in battle, even in that story, the story plays out that as the other armies are feeling defeated and running away to regroup, God throws down hailstones from the sky and the text literally says God killed more people than Joshua did. So who's responsible for the victory in chapter 10? Ain't Joshua. God is. He used Joshua in an absolutely massive way, but that's God's victory. Not Joshua's victory. But we got one more text that we can absolutely drive this point home. Joshua 24. This is the tail end of the book of Joshua. It's also the tail end of Joshua's life. In chapter 24, we read this. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to the people, thus says the Lord. So everything that Joshua's going to say after this is God speaking through him. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Verse 3, then I, God, took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Verse 4, then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness. Uh, the, the text there, the, the, the Hebrew text that we use to translate the Old Testament, literally says he put there. But a lot of scholars think that, that has been corrupted over time. It should probably say I put. So he put, I put darkness between you, and the Egyptians made the sea uh, come upon Upon them and covered them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. 
Verse 8, then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Verse 11, and you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho and the leaders of Jericho fought against you and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites and the Jebusites and I gave them into your hand and I sent the hornet before you which drove them out before you the two kings of the Amorites it was not by your sword or by your bow verse 13 I gave you a land in which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them you eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant so what's the moral of the story God did great things over and over and over and over again. Not Joshua. God did great things. God used Joshua in an absolutely massive way. But at the end of Joshua's life, Joshua doesn't get to point to anything and say, I did that. Aren't you thankful for me? Joshua doesn't get to point to his success because without the hand of God sovereignly over every moment of his life, he has no success. Because this isn't ultimately Joshua's story. Joshua plays a role, but this isn't Joshua's story. But we also have some negative questions to answer this morning, right? Like God totally redeemed Joshua, but we still have to answer question number two. What made Joshua a seemingly bad choice? What made him a bad choice to be a major character in God's story? Like, the, like those of you who may be a visitor here, we've been talking about this for several weeks now. Like we, we want God's story to, to not have any major scars or hiccups in it, right? We want God's story to be pretty clean and, and just, we don't, not in a whitewashed way, but like it's God's story. We want this to be flawless, right? But yet his story seems to be filled with all these absolutely crazy characters that are guilty of heinous sin over and over again. And so uh, what are the red flags that stand out in the life of Joshua? Well, the answer is we don't know of any sins of commission. We don't know of any times that Joshua broke God's commands by doing something he wasn't supposed to do. If it's in the Bible, I haven't found it. I don't know anybody who has does that mean that Joshua's never guilty of that stuff? Not even for a second, right? All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one who does good, no one who is righteous, no, not one. So we, we can trust that those things are existent in his life, but, uh, but God hasn't seen fit to give us those stories in the Bible. We don't know about those stories. And so as far as we're aware... Joshua never committed adultery. He never wrongly took someone's life. He didn't cheat on his taxes. I mean, compared to the other guys in, in God's story so far in Genesis and Exodus, Joshua's a pretty classy guy, right? Joshua's the guy you want to be your neighbor. Like, you don't want Moses to be your neighbor. He's a murderer. You don't want Jacob to be your neighbor. He'll probably take all your power tools. Joshua's the guy you want to be your neighbor. But hopefully you're starting to notice by now that we're clarifying sins of commission. 
What are sins of commission? Well, the root word is commit. Sins of commission are when you do the things that God tells you not to do. Think Ten Commandments, right? Stealing, lying, murdering, coveting. When you do what God tells you not to do, that is a sin of commission. But that's not the only way to sin. It's not the only way to sin. There's also sins of omission. The root word in omission is omit. Sins of omission are when you fail to do the good things that God has told you to do. And we absolutely know of a major sin of omission in Joshua's life. In fact, a very glaring one. In Numbers 33, God commands the leaders of Israel. And this is happening, if you remember in chapter 27, God declaring that Joshua is going to be the next leader and giving Joshua some responsibility. Joshua's already been commissioned by this point. So Joshua's there when this is being spoken by God. In Numbers 33, God tells the leaders of Israel, including Joshua, this. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. The command is crystal clear. If you fail to drive out the inhabitants of the land, they will be your downfall, God tells them. If you fail to drive out the inhabitants of the land, you will fall to the temptation to worship their gods. You will fall into their patterns of sin and they will be the end of you. You want to see how that story plays out? For exercise, let's see how that story plays out. Joshua 13, 13. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maacathites, but Geshur and Maacath uh, dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Joshua 15, 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out, so the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Joshua 16, 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites had lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. That's nice of them. Joshua 17, 12, and 13. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Are you starting to pick up a theme here? Joshua's given the clear command to drive out all the inhabitants of the land, and he doesn't do it. He fails in that regard. And what's the result? What book comes after Joshua in the Bible? In case you haven't read the book of Judges, let me give you the 22nd Stephen Woodard translation. A 400-year cycle of God's people falling into the sin patterns of a people who shouldn't be there around them, becoming enslaved to that sin, becoming literally enslaved to the people they learned that sin from and having to be rescued by God, by a judge that God raised up. They have peace for a little while and then the pattern starts over. Pick up the sin habit, become enslaved to the sin, become enslaved to the people, have to be rescued. Pick up the sin habit, become enslaved to the sin, become enslaved to the people, have to be rescued. A 400-year cycle of that. Over and over and over again. And every word of it is based off of, is birthed out of the fact that Joshua didn't do what God told Joshua to do. 
And the people of God, they suffer for it. For generations, centuries, they suffer for it. Joshua did awesome stuff for God, but he failed to complete the thing that God commanded him to do. It's not to put a healthy terror in anybody who is responsible for leading God's people. It does me. And I can't think of a better time to make a beeline to the gospel this morning. Because if we're reading Joshua's story correctly, we feel the weightiness of Joshua's failure, right? Surely this can't be the end of the story. And it's not, because we have question number four. How does Joshua's story preach the gospel? Last week we learned uh, when we were talking about Moses, about typology, all right, about types. A type, we said then, was a shadow of something greater. A shadow of something greater. That their purpose was to point to something much more beautiful and much more fulfilling coming down the pipe. All right? And so last week we learned that Moses was a type of Christ in that God raised him up to be the deliverer of God's people. Right, that he would lead God's people out of bondage, out of slavery, if they would trust and follow him, right? That we, we learned that Moses served as a type of Christ, that he foreshadowed a coming Jesus who would lead his people to freedom in a much more eternal way. But we call them types because they aren't the real deal. And they can't live up to the qualifications and expectations of the real deal. Otherwise, they'd be the real deal. They're a type. And Israel, just like last week, needed somebody who was far more fulfilling than Moses could ever be. Israel needed a greater lawgiver and deliverer than Moses could be. And so in order to have a type, you have to have what's called an antitype. And an antitype is the real thing the real deal it's the one the shadows all wish they could be and so how is the gospel preached through the story of joshua joshua serves the role of the conquering warrior that defeated the enemy that led god's people to rest in the promised land he led god's people to rest in the promised land through joshua god gave his people the land that he promised all the way back in genesis 12 to abram he promised it to, to Abraham. They, they go through a couple of generations. They end up moving to Egypt because of the famine in the land. And they spend the next 430-ish years in Egypt. And then they, they finally get out of Egypt. And they're wandering around the desert for a generation, another 40 years. And they finally, God finally opens the door for them to receive that rest. And he does it through Joshua. Through Joshua. God creates an inheritance for his people as he decisively defeats their enemies with a mighty, mighty hand. Through Joshua, a man whose name literally means Yahweh saves, the personal name for God, Yahweh saves. That's what his name means. God shows time and time again that when God is working here, there is victory. And when God is not working here, there's no victory. Joshua was a type of Christ. But you can't have a type without an antitype. 
The shadow can't hold up to the qualifications and the expectations of the real thing. Because Joshua's story may begin with faithfulness, it doesn't end that way. It doesn't end that way at all. Joshua is found faithful at the beginning, but he couldn't be all that his people needed him to be. Joshua does lead God's people into the promised land, but that land, that land of rest doesn't last for very long, does it? It's not long before that that not only are they enslaved and there's no rest in the land, but they're eventually taken away from the land altogether. The people of Israel needed a rest that couldn't be taken away from them. Joshua was found faithful at the beginning, but he couldn't be all that his people needed him to be. And Jesus, a man whose name also means Yahweh saves, would step onto the scene and defeat our greatest enemy, Satan's sin and death itself, with a decisive blow that left absolutely nothing unfinished. In fact, he says exactly that from the cross, tetelestai. Those of you who've been in church a long time, what does that mean? It is finished. It is finished. While Joshua, the type, the shadow, let us down where he fails to deliver everything that is needed, Jesus, the anti-type, the real and final hero of this story, steps in and sees it through to full completion. Where the land of rest that Joshua provides is temporary and ultimately taken away from us because of our sin, Jesus, through his work on the cross, can promise every person in his within earshot of him, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Where Joshua fails to provide ultimate and final rest for his people, Jesus doesn't fail. Come to me. God used Joshua in a massive way, but Joshua's story isn't ultimately about Joshua because God's people needed someone much greater and much, much more faithful than Joshua could ever be. And so the answer to our ultimate question this morning is pretty simple. God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And so today we learn that. God raised up Joshua to be a shadow of a more perfect Joshua to come in Jesus. And don't we desperately need someone more perfect than Joshua? The story of God is no small deal. It's the greatest action adventure drama the world will ever know is in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. He is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason, and that's that his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. This is the story of God. So what do we do with the text this morning? How do we respond to God's word? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God, right? You do that through his word. It's the primary means by which he's given us to know him, right? So consider starting with Joshua. Yes, even the book of Joshua is for the purpose of you knowing our God. Start there. It's got some cool word literature. It's a lot of fun. Tails off at the end. Got some problems. Starts out really cool. But listen, we can take another step into this. Maybe your story is a lot more like Joshua's than you like to admit. Maybe you've got... All kinds of God did this and God did that story stuffed in your back pocket. But for whatever reason, your faithfulness is just kind of tapered off at the end. It's seen better days. I want to lovingly look you in the eye and say, listen, sins of omission are sins too. 
To fail to do the good things that God has called you to do is also sin. But hear me. Today's a good day to repent of that and take steps of obedience. So press in this morning. Listen, maybe it's not even because you've got these crazy sins of, of commission. Maybe you've just gotten lazy. Do something about it. Today's a good day to do something about it. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up front here to, to talk and pray with you if that's helpful for you this morning. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus today, I say every week, man, I'm glad you're here. Hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. Listen, you can respond this morning as well. You can do that by meeting the one that this story is all about. You need somebody who's much greater than Joshua, and Jesus steps on the scene to be exactly that. Because unlike Joshua, Jesus was faithful even unto death on a cross and will be faithful unto the end. And through his work on the cross, he pays the debt of our sin and calls us his own so that all those who call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, are his. Listen, you don't need me to walk through that, but I'm going to pray in a second. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up front here, myself included, and I'd love to walk you through what that looks like. Forget about all the, all the other times you've done the church thing. Forget about all the other times you've made spiritual decisions. Maybe today is the day where you're like, you know what? I want the Jesus who's better than the Joshua, who's faithful to the end. I want that one. I'd love to tell you about him. So let's pray. Let's sing, but listen, let's all respond to God's word this morning. Amen? Amen. God, you're good to us. Thank you for Joshua's story. God, we are far more often like Joshua than we choose to confess to. We've all got our stories. God did this thing and God did that thing. And, but the reality is, my faithfulness tends to trail away and dissolve into nothing. But you are a God who is ever faithful. And where my faithfulness fails, your faithfulness remains and will remain forever. You are the God who saves despite my inabilities to do anything about my problem. You are the God who saves despite the, the hurts and the hang-ups in my life that would prevent me from thinking I ought to be saved. You're the God who saves, not because I have anything of value to offer to you, but because you are good, and you are good eternally. So God, as we all begin to process through what you're calling us to do this morning, would you give us courage to act on it? Save us. Convict us of sin. Draw us to yourself. Because it's you and you alone that we desperately need today. In your name we pray. Amen.